I next met with Dr. Ann Sal, and to begin, she presented a 66-year-old man from her practice. This was actually a patient that came to me because I had treated his father-in-law, and so they wanted me to also take care of him. And unfortunately, he had been a smoker in the past, and so he had gotten a chest X-ray for probably routine, I think it was a knee surgery. And the chest X-ray unfortunately showed that he had two nodules in his left upper lobe. And so at that time, we gave him neoadjuvant chemo and then surgical resection. And this was back in 2011. And we actually were very hopeful that he actually was cured of his disease. But unfortunately, during his routine screening, we found out that he had recurrent disease. He had masses all along his left pleura and then also some anterior mediastinal nodes. Now, what was the tissue, the histologic diagnosis here? He was squamous cell carcinoma. So can you talk about, you know, just at a basic level, what the different histologies are that are seen in lung cancer and how they break down in terms of, you know, the percent roughly and sort of their clinical presentation? Sure. So the big distinction is always between non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer. Now, small cell lung cancer tends to be a smaller percentile of all lung cancer patients, but when we're dealing with the non-small cell lung cancer variety, that's broken up into smaller histologic categories as well. So the big three categories there are adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and then large cell neuroendocrine. Large cell neuroendocrine is probably 10 to 11% roughly. And then although we are seeing a bit of a shift in the presentations of the adeno and the squamous cell carcinoma histologies, usually we see about 40% adenocarcinoma, and then the remainder are usually about squamous cell carcinoma, about 50%. Now, depending on where you are geographically in the U.S., that can be very different. Like heavy smoking, you know, beltway areas, you're going to see more squamous cell carcinoma and more small cell. So this man is now was presenting with recurrent, I guess, metastatic squamous cell cancer. At that point, first of all, can you talk about when you evaluated the patient, where the tumor was present and what kind of symptoms, if any, he was having from the tumor? Yeah, he unfortunately had no symptoms at all. So this was all picked up on his routine monitoring. So he actually had tumors located in the left pleura and then also in the anterior mediastinum. And again, we only pick that up because of his routine monitoring, which is why I emphasize it's really important to keep monitoring your patients. He was close to two years out from his surgery when this came back. Could you talk a little bit about his life situation, what type of work he had done or was doing, and his sort of family situation? Mm -hmm. So he actually owned his own company. They worked in construction. And his father-in-law was also a rancher. And so, you know, unfortunately in their culture, smoking was part of the culture. He did quit a couple of years before he got his lung cancer diagnosis, but he had at least, I believe, 50 years of smoking. And he had a wife and kids? He did, yes. He had a wife. They have several children. So he had a great support network to help take care of him. Now, you mentioned you took care of his father-in-law. How long ago was that and what happened with his father-in-law? Well, his father-in-law had mesothelioma, again, probably exposed during the construction work that he'd been doing. And unfortunately, when I did meet him, he was not surgically resectable, so a cure wasn't an option. And so he unfortunately did pass away about a year before my current patient came to see me. And the father-in-law, did he go into hospice? He did. Mm -hmm. And what was that experience like for your patient and when you first started discussing with him metastatic disease, what were his greatest concerns? 
Well, his greatest concerns were his family, of course. This is a wonderful family. You know, they're very close-knit. They'd already been through the cancer story before with his father-in-law. And so they were very experienced and more medically savvy. They knew that they needed to get on this quickly. They also knew because his father-in-law was able to do very well with systemic therapies for about maybe two years, two and a half years. And so that exceeded the median time frame that most people give mesothelioma patients. And so they knew not to go on the internet and just take the nine-month survival and believe that that's all he had. So they were very willing to hope and very willing to work with me for his treatments. So were there any personal goals that the patient had or things that he wanted to do in this time? He wanted to maintain his quality of life as well as get as much time with his family as he could. And that was really the family and his main priority. And he's actually done very well with his different treatments. And we've been able to maintain him now for, it's close to probably three years now. So I want to go through that, but just again, sort of in terms of, you know, basically how you approach a patient who has a metastatic non-small cell. First of all, can you talk a little bit about in the initial evaluation, for example, when you initially evaluated him and you found these metastatic lesions, what were the kinds of treatment options that you thought were possibilities? Well, at the time, we have more options now, but at the time, we had pretty limited options for squamous cell carcinoma. Back then, a platinum doublet was really the only option, and then maybe you could consider maintenance or lotinib. But, you know, for him, I was able to get cetuximab added in to his treatment, even though that is not an FDA-approved agent. We now subsequently have today nesetumumab, which is an EGFR monoclonal antibody, which is FDA-approved for the squamous cell carcinoma population. So, But that wasn't the option back then. But I am one of those people who do believe that EGFR inhibition has benefit in EGFR well-type patients. And so I wanted to give him every opportunity. And so I was able to get him carbopaclitaxel and cetuximab. He did great for six cycles of therapy with complete control of his disease. And then he did an additional year on cetuximab as maintenance therapy. So let's go through that a little bit. Of course, we know cetuximab, particularly from colon cancer, as an anti-EGFR antibody. And as you mentioned now, recently there's been one of these agents, nesetumumab, approved in lung cancer. But, you know, just taking a step back in terms of first the choice of the basic chemotherapy. Now, he received carboplatin paclitaxel, as you mentioned, but there are other combinations that are utilized. One is carboplatin with NAB paclitaxel, which has been a particular consideration in squamous cell cancer that he has, and also carboplatin with gemcitabine. How do you compare these three different sort of doublets? Mm -hmm. So I would say if you're looking strictly at the doublets in terms of efficacy and quality of life, it really just depends on your patients. If you do carbogem, you don't give them any risk of neuropathy. And also if you use the NAB paclitaxel, that's considered to be far less neuropathy inducing as well. Now, the reason why we chose carbopaclitaxel for him is because he lives in Dallas. And so he was traveling to see me. So for him to come travel weekly for a chemotherapy would have been really tough. And so the NAB paclitaxel and gemcitabine are both given are all given weekly. So that's why he got the every three week dosing. Just to pick up on that, and another differentiating point, and you hear this also discussed in breast cancer with NAB paclitaxel, is the fact that you don't see allergic reactions and you don't need to use corticosteroids to prevent that. 
To what extent, if any, do you view that as an advantage? So I definitely view that as an advantage in our elderly patients or those who are diabetic or who are fragile diabetics. And also, I do find that the napaclitaxel is very well tolerated in our patients who have pre-existing neuropathy for whatever reason, whether it's comorbidities or if it's prior chemotherapy. So you mentioned, of course, that he also got the cetuximab. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what we know about what each of our antibodies add on. You know, cetuximab or now nesetumab, both in terms of efficacy, but also in terms of tolerability and side effect issues. Mm -hmm. So at the time that I had been treating him, there had been two large phase three studies, the FLEX trial and then the BMS-099 trial. Both were using the cetuximab with a platinum doublet. Now, to summarize the efficacy from both trials, essentially the cetuximab addition gave a median of about 1.2 month median overall survival benefit when you look at the absolute numbers on both trials. Now in the FLEX study, it was statistically significant, but in the BMS-099 trial, it was not statistically significant. So there's always been this controversy about whether cetuximab should get FDA approval for our patients. Now, the nesetumumab, which is the newer agent that has recently gotten FDA approval, did also show this overall survival benefit, and it was statistically significant. And so that is certainly the option that we can go forward with now today, but a few years ago, I didn't have that as an option. But, you know, either one of these options, and this is true for a lot of treatments in oncology nowadays, added, you know, relatively little, unfortunately. I mean, it wasn't going to cure the person, maybe not even have a huge, I mean, talking about a couple months extra survival. Can you talk about, though, why it is that we use these therapies? And is this, you know, really what the patients want? Mm -hmm. Well, it's also that there's always a tail end of the curve. And unfortunately, we just haven't been able to identify yet which of these patients are the ones that get tremendous benefit. Now, we were very lucky with him. He was able to be on this treatment for about a year and three quarters of another year. And so... He clearly was sensitive to these agents, but there was no predictive biomarker that I could use to determine that. And so we always try with our patients when we have an agent that we don't have a predictive biomarker that can tell us that this is the patient that's going to benefit the most. But we do want to give our patients the absolute best options moving forward. And the patients want that too. They know that these survival outcomes for metastatic lung cancer are not great. And using traditional chemotherapies oftentimes don't provide them with the median survival benefit that they want. And of course, I think we should also clarify that we're going to talk in a second about patients who have EGFR tumor mutations and their treatment. But here, when we talk about using an anti-EGFR antibody, we're talking about using it in people without mutations. That's correct. And so EGFR mutations are a totally different class of patients that should be treated with the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. What we're talking about here in this patient's case is he was an EGFR wild type patient, so he did not have a mutation. So whenever you try to balance out a treatment that doesn't have you know fantastic benefits, but some benefits, the tolerability comes in. Of course, we're very sensitive and nurses are very experienced with the problems you can see with these anti-EGFR antibodies from colon cancer, particularly dermatologic problems. What do you see in lung cancer patients and what happened with this man? 
Yeah, so absolutely. The monoclonal antibodies to EGFR do give you rash and diarrhea. Probably about 50% of patients get some touch of diarrhea. And then maybe about 10 to 15% might have significant diarrhea that really requires intervention. The rash, luckily our patient in this case, he did not have diarrhea, but he did have the rash. And because he was outdoors a lot working with his construction firm, you know, that was a problem because sun exposure can make this rash worse. Wind exposure makes the skin more dry and more prone to cracking. And so he had the perinechiae. He had the grade two skin rash that was a constant battle for him, especially on his face and on his scalp. And so we had to do antibiotics. He was constantly using the antibiotic creams and moisturizing lotions and oftentimes hydrocortisone cream as well. What was the biggest problem that the rash was causing for him? Was it discomfort? Or I've also heard, and I heard this morning with the GI cancers of social stigmatization that people don't really like having the rash on their face. Well, that's absolutely an issue. And because he was the head of his company, it was also a big issue because it was quite clear that he was taking treatments for cancer. And so he was a very strong individual with excellent family support, and his company and firm were very supportive of him. But I do know that that did affect his psyche to have such a visible rash on his face so that when he was presenting to his company employees, that was something he was very conscious of. So it sounds like he did much better than most patients, whether it was the cetuximab or what, than you would expect with metastatic squamous cell cancer going on for, you know, as you say, almost two years on this initial therapy. Before we continue on in terms of what happened with him, I'd like you to contrast a little bit about how you would have thought through the same situation if it was another kind of cancer that was not squamous. You know, it seems like we kind of categorize them in these scenarios of either squamous or not squamous. And of course, those are typically adenocarcinomas. So if he had had an adenocarcinoma in the same situation, first question I have is we have the whole issue of trying to find tumor mutations. We were talking about EGFR mutations. And what I've seen is that in squamous cell cancers, you don't see too many mutations, at least right now, we don't seem to know many mutations that we can treat. But in adenocarcinoma, there's a bunch of them. Can you kind of provide an overview of sort of how you think through the first diagnosis of metastatic, let's say, adenocarcinoma, and where does looking for tumor mutations fit in? So it is standard practice for all adenocarcinomas to be profiled, or that's definitely the recommendation, because you want to look for these actionable mutations, such as the EGFR mutation, of which there are several that have now been identified, and some of which are highly sensitive to our agents with the EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors. There are now resistant mutations that you have to be aware of as well, specifically the T790 mutation, which is resistant to first-generation EGFR TKIs. But in terms of the adenocarcinoma profile, there's also the EML4-ALK translocation, These are patients who are also very unique in their ALK inhibitors that are all available now. Specifically, there's crizotinib, seritinib, and then now electinib, and then brigitanib should be coming out shortly. And so these patients all have a very different prognosis. You can keep them on pills for years. And so it's absolutely essential that we identify these patients in particular. Now, there are also patients who have more rare mutations, such as ROS1, which also responds to crizotinib and seritinib. Electinib does not cover it, though. 
but also BRAF mutations. So there are BRAF inhibitors that are coming out and also HER2 mutants. So trastuzumab is an option and then there are some other HER2 tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are under investigation. So these are the ones that we try to keep an eye out for to try to get them targeted therapies as soon as we can. There are other mutations, unfortunately, that come up, such as KRAS mutation, that we don't have very good options for at this time. And so chemotherapy for those patients are still considered the standard practice. And the other thing is this man has an extensive smoking history, and we know that these mutations are much more common in non-smokers, but do you still test the tissue of the smokers for these mutations? I absolutely do if they're an adenocarcinoma. If they're a heavy smoker with squamous cell, then there's not anything really actionable that we've found in those cases. And oftentimes their insurance doesn't cover the testing yet. But that's not to say that we won't have something in the future. We do know that there are specific mutations that come up frequently in squamous cell carcinoma like PI3K, P10, FGFR, So these are things that we still have yet to complete the research on. So again, thinking about a parallel situation in, say, adenocarcinoma metastatic, uh, assuming that there were no tumor mutations found, what in that situation, what is the usual first-line therapy for metastatic disease? Well, in his case, if he had been an adenocarcinoma, I would have had the option of giving him carboplatin pemetrexide with or without the bevacizumab. He had no homoptysis. He didn't have any invasion of any mediastinal arteries or any mediastinal structures. And so he certainly could have been a candidate for bevacizumab if he had been an adenocarcinoma. And so we could have done carbopemetrexide alone or carbopembev, or we could have done carbopaclitaxel bevacizumab. And I see, you know, we survey both investigators and oncologists in practice over the last few years. We've seen really a shift towards the use of pemetrexed as the partner for the carboplatin, moving away from the taxanes or paclitaxel. What's the reason for that? I think because it doesn't give you neuropathy and you don't lose your hair and it's very well tolerated. And then also in the second line setting, you could always use the taxanes then. And because the taxanes do give you neuropathy, I think people try to hold off as long as they can. And I guess one thing that we see in these situations also is the use of the same strategy that your patient had, which is maintenance treatment. Mm -hmm. So an initial treatment, which includes the platinum agent, then you drop the platinum agent and give, you know, sort of a therapy that's easier to go with long-term as maintenance. What kinds of maintenance strategies do you use in adenocarcinoma? So in adenocarcinoma, if I was given carbopem alone, you can do pemetrexed maintenance. If you're using carbopaclitaxel alone, you have the option to do pemetrexed maintenance or even erlotinib maintenance. Certainly if you're using carbopem-bev, then you have the option of giving PEM maintenance or PEM-BEV maintenance or even BEV maintenance. There is a trial E5508, which is hopefully going to be coming out in the next year that will give us the information about whether we should use one drug as maintenance or two drugs. So that's still an outstanding research question that we don't know the answer yet. But certainly these are all possibilities. And the way you make your decision about maintenance therapy is you weigh the patient's performance status, what their wishes are, what their side effects are to the drugs, and then how motivated they are, how much they want to do it. So this man, like almost all people with metastatic non-small cell, then had to face getting second-line therapy because we know first-line therapy in this situation is not in any way curative. 
What happened that you decided after, like I said, almost two years that you felt that the treatment was not working anymore? Yes, we had a very good response, you know, initially to his triplet regimen and then held it with the maintenance cetuximab, but his pleural disease started to grow. He also had a new liver lesion. And so because of that, because of the new disease and then the amount of growth that I saw, I wasn't comfortable continuing with the cetuximab. Was he having symptoms? He actually never had symptoms. No, not from his cancer. So this was all imaging changes. He was mm-hmm. still feeling well other than really side effects of treatment, I guess, mm-hmm. the cetuximab. But you felt like the treatment wasn't working. What were the options and what are the usual considerations for second-line therapy in metastatic squamous cell? So whenever a patient has been on maintenance therapy for a year, you do have the option of rechallenging them with a triplet regimen. So that certainly could have been an option that we could have taken. Um, to be honest, we discussed it, and he really didn't want to do that. He thought maybe it would be better to try a whole new agent. And because ramsirumab had just come out, which is an anti-angiogenic inhibitor, And we know that squamous cell carcinomas do respond to the anti-angiogenic inhibitors, and it's a totally new class of drug. We opted to go ahead with the docetaxel plus the ramsirumab as second-line therapy. So I think, you know, when we've polled people in the past who were in the situation of squamous cell progressing on first-line therapy, pretty much a very common choice, almost standard, was docetaxel. And then, as you say, some research came out looking at the drug ramucirumab, and it actually became approved both in squamous and non-squamous cells. So what is ramucirumab, and what did these data show that got it to be brought onto the marketplace? So ramucirumab is another monoclonal antibody, and it targets the vascular endothelial growth factor receptor. Now, the vascular endothelial growth factor pathway and receptor are critical for what we call angiogenesis, or the formation of new blood vessels, or essentially the food supply to the cancer. And so when you target this pathway, it's almost like pruning the branches off of the tree. You cut off the food supply to the tumor, and you starve the tumor. And so you do combine this with the chemotherapy, and so the REVEL study was a very large phase three trial, which is what got the drug FDA approved, and it was done in combination with docetaxel versus docetaxel alone, and it showed a progression-free and survival benefit that were all statistically significant. And more importantly, it showed the benefit in both adenocarcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas. Now, in adenos, we can use bevacizumab in the frontline setting, but we did not have that option for squamous cells. So this is the first anti-angiogenic that could be used in squamous cell carcinoma. Yeah, I guess we should point out that bevacizumab isn't used with squamous cell because I guess initially in the early studies, they saw bleeding. They did. They saw fatal pulmonary hemoptysis in the early trials with squamous cell. I believe it was a phase two trial that they saw this. And so all sort of development in squamous cell and frontline bevacizumab usage stopped based off of that. Although it's interesting that, you know, we'll talk about how ramucirumab works, but it is an anti-angiogenic like Bev, and yet they didn't see the hemoptysis with squamous cell here. You know, maybe it's the drug or maybe people were just smarter about picking patients. 
Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of both, but it's more importantly choosing the patients. I think, you know, we now know because of use of bevacizumab, you never give anti-angiogenics to anyone who might even have a hint of hemoptysis. You never give it to somebody who has tumor that's encroaching on or invading into mediastinal structures. And you generally don't give it to somebody who looks like they have huge cavitary lesions because that increases their risk potentially of hemoptysis. So in terms of the side effect tolerability profile of remdesivir, now my understanding is remdesivir is a monoclonal antibody that attacks the receptor because mm-hmm. uh, we certainly heard about this first in gastric cancer where it was initially approved, whereas bevacizumab traps the VEGF ligand that's going to bind to the receptor. So they work slightly differently, but in terms of problems that you see, what do you see and how do you compare the two? Well, they're actually very similar in their side effect profile, but for whatever reason, we are seeing less risk of the pulmonary hemoptysis with the ramsirumab in the squamous cell carcinomas. So it's a little uncertain yet why that is. I mean, it could be that these are all pretreated patients, and so those who are going to have hemoptysis already got radiated and already had the area of concern sclerosed down. We're still not sure yet why that is and whether there's a molecular reason. But nevertheless, for the most part, you know, you still have to look out for hypertension. You still have to look out for proteinuria. You still have to look out for any type of bleeding and caution the patients that, you know, if they have any nose bleeding, which is very common actually, that they need to employ immediate ice packs and pressure to try to stop that. I guess the one thing, you know, certainly has been an advantage to bevacizumab used a lot in a lot of different cancers is that even though you can run into issues like the hypertension, it doesn't seem to cause, I guess, any quality life problems. You know, it doesn't make people feel bad. Is that your take on that? And with this man, could you detect anything that you thought any problem related to the ramucirumab? Yeah, so in general, the hypertension from any of the antiangiogenics is usually well-managed. I mean, it's more of a a lab thing that you catch. And then if it is a problem and recurring, then you usually just give them a small dose of an antihypertensive. And generally, patients have no problem with that. They're usually taking a lot of medications anyway. So one more added to their regimen is not that bad. So he actually did okay. I wouldn't say he did great with the docetaxel ramsirumab. For whatever reason, he had complications with dehydration. And so I think for whatever reason, the docetaxel didn't make him feel very good. He was getting like generalized malaise, myalgias. He stopped eating and drinking normally, which is always problematic when you're on chemo. So I don't think this was the ramsirumab per se, but probably the combination of the two agents that made him sort of get dehydrated. And so, of course, he had a bit of a complication with the syncopal episode from the dehydration, and so he was hospitalized for that. He also had a urine tract infection identified at that time. So that did complicate his first cycle of therapy. During his second subsequent cycles of therapy, he did much better. I made him keep a list of all the fluid he was drinking during the day, and his family was on top of him. So he did do much better symptom-wise. He had a very nice response to therapy after two cycles of treatment. We went ahead with an additional two cycles of therapy, and then unfortunately it looked like his disease was starting to grow. In general, the amount of growth, you probably, I could have considered continuing with the regimen, but because he just had this awful malaise, 
He just wasn't himself. He didn't feel well. And quality of life was such an issue for him. We opted to consider going on to nivolumab. So, of course, nivolumab is an anti-PD-1 antibody that now is approved, actually, in lung cancer. What's his current situation? Has he started on the treatment? Yeah, he's still on nivolumab. So far, he's holding pretty good. How long has he been on it? Oh, a few months now. I'd have to calculate, but maybe five to six months. Really? Any side effect issues? He's had none, luckily. And what about the tumor? It's stable. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about earlier stage non-small cell a little bit. And I wanted to ask you about adjuvant therapy. And you brought in a case of a 68-year-old woman. Can you just briefly talk about what happened with her? Sure. So she actually was getting a screening chest x-ray by her primary care physician because she had a smoking history. So we generally don't recommend screening chest x-rays, but her PCP did this. And so she was found to have a 3.4 centimeter tumor. The biopsy showed it was adenocarcinoma. So she went in for surgical resection and it came back as adenocarcinoma. She did have lymphovascular invasion. She also did have some peribronchial lymph nodes, about 4 out of 14 that were positive. She had no evidence of any metastatic disease on her PET CT scans and also on her mediastinal lymph node sampling. They were negative. And so she was a T2A. N1, so she was stage 2, and then she came to my clinic after surgical resection for discussion of our adjuvant options. Could you talk about what her life situation was? Was she working? What her family situation was? Well, she was a homemaker. Her husband had his own company, and so she had a very good life. She actually played tennis at the local club, you know, every week, and so she was very physically active. And Children? She did have children. She had three children, one of whom was a nurse. And so they definitely were very savvy in terms of medical knowledge and what her options were. And so when we talked about adjuvant chemotherapy options, she definitely wanted to be maximally aggressive. And she definitely wanted to take all treatment possible to give her her best chance of a cure. I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but was she a smoker? She had a small smoking history before. I think it was just a 30-pack year smoking history, but she had quit probably about 10 to 15 years prior to her diagnosis. What was her state of mind having been diagnosed with lung cancer? Like a lot of people with lung cancer, she's an ex-smoker. Any feelings that she verbalized to you? Well, I think that there's always a sense from not just her, but in general, a lot of our patients come in and if they've smoked before, they almost act as if they deserved the cancer, which they don't. And that is such a fallacy, but it's something you have to work through with the patients that this is, you know, not their fault that they have a cancer. You know, we do need to get their hopes up and try to, you know, help them through what is very difficult treatment, even in the early stage setting. It's interesting you say that because I've asked that same question to a lot of people, and I don't hear that many docs and nurses saying what you just said. you feel that patients say this to you or you sort of sense it? It's both. Oftentimes, you know, I think part of what I'm fortunate with is we do have a psychologist that works with us. And so I do try to bring her into all of my cases where I feel like our patients are not as motivated to be as aggressive with their treatment, especially in the early stage setting when we are going for cure. You get the sense that they don't feel that they're worthy of getting therapy that's curative. There's oftentimes survivor's guilt even that happens afterwards. That's interesting, you know, because I mean, I think there's so much social pressure against smoking now that I can, you have to, even if people don't express it, I agree with you, you have to assume it's there. 
But in any event, from a medical point of view, she's facing a situation that we see in breast cancer and colon cancer, the so-called adjuvant situations, which is a real challenge because you don't know who's going to relapse and who's not going to relapse. So it kind of gets down to a bunch of numbers. I don't know if she actually asked the numbers or you went through them with her, but from your own point of view, what was her chance of relapsing and dying of the disease? And how would you think that would have been affected by getting adjuvant therapy? Well, I think that adjuvant therapy in general gives you about a 5% overall survival benefit at five years. And so in her case, because she was stage two, I rated her risk as moderately higher. I think in stage three patients, you absolutely need to give adjuvant chemotherapy. Also in stage two, it becomes more debatable if they are stage one. But in her case, she had lymph nodes spread. And so that definitely is an indication for adjuvant chemotherapy. And although, again, it seems as if the statistics and the numbers are small, you want to give them every edge you can for cure. But on the other hand, they're about to go through a therapy that's going to cause likely some problems. If she had said to you, or did she say to you, Again, what exactly is your best guess on my risk of relapse with and without chemo? What numbers would you have given her? Yeah, usually we say for her particular stage, we'd probably say 50 to 60% that she would be okay. But then the rest would be, you know, that something would come back. So, and that that would be improved by about 5%? Roughly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in a way, that sounds like a pretty modest advantage to have to go through chemotherapy. What was her response to those numbers? Well, she was very motivated. She wanted every single opportunity possible. And again, it's only four treatments of chemotherapy. So that's 12 weeks that you invest in to try to give yourself your best chance. One of the big differences between, for example, breast cancer and lung cancer in terms of adjuvant therapy is In breast cancer, the surgical procedure they've just gone through is much less difficult than in lung cancer. What was her general condition recuperating from surgery when you saw her, and how was it going through the surgery? Well, she was very lucky, and I think it comes from the fact that she played tennis every week. But she recovered like a champion. She was, you know, walking, actively talking two days after surgery. She was very motivated getting out of bed, even though she had the chest tube still in. And then by the time she saw me in the clinic, she was very well healed. She was eating well. She hadn't lost any weight. And so she was, you know, I think perhaps in our upper level of patients in terms of physical activity. There are, of course, patients that come to your clinic that they don't look like they can actually do the chemotherapy because the surgery was just so hard for them. And so I usually just see them two weeks later to see if maybe a little bit more recovery time could get them into better shape. And then depending on their stage, we make a decision about whether to do the adjuvant chemo. Now, one thing that you see a lot different in terms of the choice of chemotherapy is in metastatic disease, most people seem to mainly use carboplatin, which your other patient received. But in the adjuvant setting, there's much more of an inclination to use cisplatin. Why is that, and how much of a difference does it make? Well, it all comes down to this large meta-analysis of 10,000 patients called the CISCA analysis, cisplatin versus carboplatin meta-analysis. 
So what they did is they took 10,000 patients who had received platinum doublets. And again, this was in the metastatic setting, but this was also back in a day when we didn't have targeted therapies and all we had were chemos. And so there weren't really that many variables. And when they did the comparison between cisplatin-based doublets versus carboplatin-based doublets, they showed that there was a trend towards an overall survival benefit and also a better response rate. And so because there is that slight edge based off of this meta-analysis of 10,000 patients, I think that all of us, and it's recommended now in the NCCN guidelines, will use cisplatin when we're going for curative intent, either neoadjuvant or adjuvant. In the metastatic setting, I haven't seen that the survival results really are all that different with cisplatin or carboplatin, and the carboplatin can be more well-tolerated in many of our patients because, as you know, cisplatin gives you pretty bad nausea. You have to give them a lot of antiemetics, kidney protectant with mannitol, and you have to hydrate them really well. And so some people just don't tolerate the cisplatin very well because of the risk of kidney problems if they are a diabetic. So there are a number of agents that have been combined with cisplatinum. What are the doublets that you think are reasonable to consider, and what do you generally recommend, and what did you recommend to this woman? So in the adenocarcinoma setting, and what I gave her was actually cisplatin pemetrexate for four cycles of therapy. In squamous cell carcinoma, I usually give cisplatin docetaxel for four treatments. Now, there was a trial that unfortunately didn't pan out, which was looking at the addition of bevacizumab to a platinum doublet in the adjuvant setting. And unfortunately, we didn't see the survival benefit there. So a triplet is not recommended. So how did this lady do with her four cycles of cisplatinum PEM? She actually handled it extremely well. You know, we did give her antiemetics, and I did extend out the antiemetics to five days. But beyond that, she did great. We didn't have any hospitalizations, no complications. Um, She completed therapy, and she's just currently being monitored every three months. And what kinds of monitoring specifically is being done with her? And when you see the disease recurring, what's the time frame that you usually see it? So I usually will monitor every three months. In the past, I used to do PET CT scans, but nowadays that's no longer economically feasible and a lot of insurance companies push back on that. So if a PET CT can't be obtained, I usually do a chest and pelvic CT scan. And in general, what I tell my patients is if the cancer is going to come back, it usually will be within the first two years. So I monitor every three months during the first year and usually every three to four months during year two. Because sometimes if the cancer does come back, it comes back in one spot and you can do local therapy to it and then go back to monitoring. And so that is sometimes an option that you can still salvage these patients. So I encourage them to always do their monitoring after they've had early stage disease that's been technically cured.